Bibles to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is about our security in the presence of God. He is our security. He's our only security. <clears throat> psalm 91 is a psalm of trust. And it's very similar to Psalm 90, which was written by Moses. So it's thought that it might, this psalm also might be written by Moses. On the other hand, the experiences of Moses and the ideas of Moses could have been used by an unnamed author, an unnamed writer. And this psalm has a very strong messianic influence. And in verses 14 through 16, God himself speaks. The development of the psalm is in, main, is in four main parts. First, there's a confession of confidence in the Lord in verses 1 and 2. Second, there's assurance that those who trust in the Lord need not fear evil in verses 3 through 8. And third, promises of God's protection of the coming one, speaking of Jesus Christ in verses 9 through 13. And fourth, a description of the Lord's protection of the coming one in verses 14 through 16. The theme of this psalm is God's protection in the middle of danger. Now, God doesn't promise us that we won't experience danger or that we're free from danger, but he does promise us his help whenever we face danger. The author is anonymous. Like I said, some think it's possibly uh, written by Moses. But so let's look now <clears throat> at verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 91. And the psalmist writes, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. Now, in order to understand this wonderful promise, we have to ask ourselves, what is the secret place of the Most High? And we see this same thought about this secret place more, more than once in Scripture. Sometimes it tells us about a particular secret hiding place. Like David often had to run to as a fugitive, you know, running from Saul. And it speaks of the sure protection of God. Also, it's compared to a safe shelter. At other times, the middle tent of the commander of an army seems to be meant by, again, this, uh, uh, this, this hiding place, this secret place. For example, in Psalm 27, 5, the psalmist says, He shall hide me in his pavilion. And what this says is that the enemy would have to break through rank after rank of the army before he could get to or reach the well-guarded middle tent where the leader of the camp stayed. It was so hard for the enemy to get to him because it was so strongly placed that it's taken as a symbol of our security in God. Third, it's also thought to be the most holy place of the tabernacle and the temple that's being referred to here as the secret place. That holy place where definitely the secret place of the Most High was. It could only be entered once a year. And only by one person. And that was the high priest who would carry the blood of atonement there. And for the rest of the year, nobody, not even the high priest, could enter the secret place. No eye ever looked upon the glory of God that shined from that place. The separation and the emptiness in that holy place represents the sad separation that happened to, between God and man because of man's sin when Adam fell. But that secret place was the earthly dwelling place of God. There, between the cherubim, 
His glory shined outward, and He was said to dwell there. But what's it like to dwell there? Literally speaking, no man has ever dwelt there. So we're forced to look for the spiritual meaning of this secret place. And as we do, we see that, number one, Israel entered that secret place in the person of the high priest. He would enter there for them. When he carried in in his hand the atoning blood for their sins that he was about to sprinkle on the mercy seat. All Israel found entrance there through their high priest. He was their representative. And while they continued in their faith of God, and they obeyed and they trusted God, they were spiritually dwelling in that secret place. And as a fact, we are under the shadow of the Almighty. The high priest was so literally of the Most High. No evil happened to them. No plague came near their house. It was truly well with them. Secondly, and we enter and dwell there in the holy place in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We come to God pleading His all-sufficient sacrifice and atonement of which the blood that was carried by the high priest was a symbol of the blood of Christ. And we dwell there, notice, as we abide in that precious faith in Christ. The word abide is important to understand. The word abide means to stay, to continue, to remain. And as long as we stay and continue or remain in Christ, we are secure. We have no security outside of Jesus Christ. Then we're also the shout, under the shadow of the Almighty. The condemnation of the law. Sin's power. Earthly concerns. Death in the grave can't harm us. We are under the sure and blessed shelter of our God. Next, let's see the characteristics of this dwelling. Verse 2, the psalmist said, The Lord to us is our refuge. The Lord is to us our refuge. The condemnation of the law would be upon us if he wasn't our refuge. And he says he's our fortress. That's a vantage point where we fight successfully our spiritual warfare. And he's our God in whom we trust. He's the confidence. He's the satisfaction. He's the joy of our hearts so that we can say of him, he is my God. And can you say that tonight? Is he your God? And. All of this we take personally. Each of us individually taking ownership of it. The Lord is not just a refuge. He is my refuge. He is my fortress. Making it sound like a little kid when he had their toy. This is my toy. This belongs to me. And I love that. And like childlike faith. Hey, he is my refuge. He is my fortress. And I love that. What's the sure result of dwelling in the secret place of the Most High? We'll speak well about God to other people. We won't talk bad about God. We won't complain about God. And the rest of this psalm is one continual statement about the joy of dwelling in God. And the psalmist says in verse 3, Surely He will deliver you. So again, ask yourself, are you then personally and openly dwelling in God? Verse 2. The psalmist says, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in Him will I trust. There's a personal determination involved in the words, I will. It's a determination, it's a decision that I make. I will say of the Lord. That is, consider 
that, that these, this decision, these decisions are normal. It's good to make them because, you see, they're really prayers. And behind them, the desire of the heart is that God may give us the help we need to carry out these decisions. They're pleasing to God because they're a real effort to do His will. And this determination, this I will, look at its nature. He would take, the, the psalmist is saying, I will take the Lord as my refuge. Refuge. It's a confession of need and trust. Hey, I need a refuge. I need a place to go to. I need to trust in Him. And as His fortress, He'd need help in His warfare. And He would rely on the Lord for that help. And as His God, God is His soul center, His soul strength, and His soul's joy. He's to do this now. He would do this now and He would do it openly. He would do it personally. And He would do it often. What led to this decision? The experience of God's sheltering love that he talks about in verse 1. He was dwelling in the secret place. He was abiding in Christ. And he found out through his experience that he was protected from all evil. Now, how was this I will decision sustained? How was it kept? By going and tell others about what God had done for him and would do for him. Or would do for them. He said, God did this for me. He'll do it for you. It's good to say about the Lord, as he said in verse 2, He is my refuge. They have to go to Him. And He found deliverance in Him from all of the guilt and condemnation due to our sin, which otherwise would overwhelm us. But it's better to have Him as our fortress. So that, being strong in his, in his strength, we can fight successfully the great battle against the power of our enemy, the wicked one. But it's best of all to be able to say of God, He is my God. Because that's a higher level. That's a higher level of achievement like the psalmist does here. The person who can say of the Lord, He is my God, He is truly happy. Now possession, you know, when you own something, It increases the value of it to you, doesn't it? That's mine. It belongs to me. I'm going to take care of it. It causes what belongs to us for us to hold on to it with a stubbornness. This is mine. I'm not letting it go for anything in the world. You see, if it's not mine, then I don't don't cling to it. I I don't care so much about possessing it with all of my heart, soul, and might. The man who delights in God and clings to Him at all times, that's the person who can say and will say, He is my God. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. He clung to the Lord God. He knew that God was His shepherd. Now let's explain the meaning of my God. When he says He's my God, it doesn't mean that any man, any one man can have control on God. That God can exclude everybody else. Nope, I'm owned by this one person and that's it. Nobody else can have anything to do with me. That's not what it means. That may be true with many of our earthly positions. They're all mine and nobody else can have any control of them, but not in our possession of God. On the contrary, he who can say of the Lord, he is my God, is usually somebody who's learned to say this by the joyful influence of somebody else who's been able to say it. And he always wants everybody else to be able to say it too. Is he your God? He's my God. Is he yours too? 
It means that this person is so aware of his possession of God, that he's my God and his delighting God, that he couldn't have more if God was his God all by himself and nobody else's. There are others who have also said this. Jacob said that he was his God. Remember at Bethel, he had been made to, uh, he, he made to fill his deep need of God. And that's why he vows that if God would bring him back in peace, he said, then God shall be my God. And this is what every heart wants, for God to be my God. Miriam and Israel at the Red Sea, they sang, He is my God and I will prepare him a habitation. You see, they knew of his redemption. And in the joy of that redemption, they claimed him, God, as my God. You see, it's the natural desire of the saved heart. He's my God. Remember Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God. And in Jesus Christ, we learn this precious truth. That on the solid rock of Jesus Christ is where the worst suffering finds rest for their soul. What's involved in saying, my God, he's my God. The man, the man or the woman feels it. They have the witness of the Holy Spirit to the fact that God is his or her God. They tell people publicly and profess this truth. They tell people about it. They're open about it. They don't hide it. They're not closet Christians. They enjoy this this ownership of God. It's not just an imaginary idea, but it's an everlasting source to them of peace, purity, and power. Now, how can a person come to say this? Well, here's the steps of how a man or a woman can come to say, my God. First of all, conviction it's recognizing i need god and then that recognition that conviction that man i have a need for him i need god it leads to a burning desire for him now i want god and then consecration this includes the rejection of everything that would be displeasing to god that's how i can make the claim he's my god Because nothing else in the world is as important to me as my God. And nothing else in this world will keep me from making him my God. And the prompt obedience to his will for me, as far as I know it, I will obey that will. That will make him my God. Third, confession first to God and then to man. That God, that confession is that God is my God. And then fourth, confidence. You're to keep believing that God accepts the surrender that you've made. And then comes awareness that it's true. The Spirit testifies to you. You know that you know He's my God. You know that it's true. May we all make this blessed climb to the heavens and to make God our God. Verse 3. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He will deliver us from the the fowler's snare. The psalmist here often compared a man's soul to a bird. And in verse 4, God is compared to the mother bird that protects her young under her wings. Remember in Jerusalem, Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he said, you know, I would have protected you. I would have taken you under my wing wing, like like a mother protects her hens but you would not. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. Man's soul is like a bird, the psalmist is saying here. Like a bird, hey, it's exposed to a lot of dangers. 
you know, most birds, they're, they're small, they're, they're, they're fragile, and they're exposed to a lot of dangers, especially those dangers that we can't see. Man's soul is like a bird. Our soul is exposed to a lot of dangers, and especially those that we can't see. Hidden things that sneak up on us. You know, like the little birds, not just from the hawk that hovers overhead, but also from the crafty trap of the fowler. The same way with our soul. Many things can sneak up on our soul, and there are traps that, the, that Satan uh, sets for us. It's these souls that are in danger of falling into the crafty snare that need to be guarded. We need to guard our hearts. And God is the only one who can deliver us. The snare of the Father is a really good comparison. Think about it. The danger that threatens the believer, it's like a trap. It's a hidden danger. You can't see it. And for the fowler to show himself or to spread his his snare out where the bird can see him or the trap, that would be defeating his purpose. So what does he do? He hides himself and he hides the snare. So does the crafty hunter who's looking to destroy men's souls, which is Satan, our enemy. Satan is the fowler. And he, he attacks the unguarded hearts. And he does it in all kinds of ways. That's why Satan says to guard your heart. We need to guard, guard our heart. And again, Satan attacks the unguarded heart in all kinds of ways. He doesn't openly come out and, and show us the, the evil. He doesn't show us the temptations and the result of the temptations that he brings. Instead, we read it by Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. He disguises himself so we don't recognize him. He deceitfully hides from us the real nature of the sin that he deceives us with. And also, Satan will, will use bait that's adapted to our nature, our character. The fowler doesn't try to snare all birds the same way. It's like anybody that's experienced in fishing. They don't always use the same baits. They will try different baits until they find the one that hooks the fish. Satan does the same thing, but he knows our nature. He knows what, be- what bait to use best against us. He knows our nature. He studies our nature. He knows what we like. He knows what troubles us. He knows what sets us off. He sets the snare with that particular bait. Our adversary, he knows our weak points. He knows where we're vulnerable. He knows how we can best be trapped. He knows what would tempt us and would attract somebody else. Satan knows that. And like I said, he attractively, he, he attractively uses the bait that will draw us in. The devil, remember the devil lured Saul to persecute the church. How? What bait did he use? Oh, Saul, you are doing a great service to God. Oh, Saul liked that. He wanted to do a great service for God. So what did Satan do? Hey, that's what you're doing, Saul. Saul ate it up. How often Christian people are led to go to places and hang out with those who are no friends to Jesus Christ? Based on the idea that they might bring those ungodly ones under good influence. And that they're just on the verge of leading them to the Lord. The result is usually the reverse. 
I have seen many times that person, that Christian, wanting to bring that person to Christ, which they should. And, and they say, oh, I'm hanging around with them so I can be a light and I can be an influence. Well, God took you out of that world and out of those, those things that you used to do. And what happens is you get sucked back in. And guess what? You begin partaking of the very things that you say, hey, I'm trying to get this person away from. Satan knows the game and he knows us better than we know ourselves. He uses the bait that will do the job. How often, like I said, we do things thinking we know better. But again, the result is usually the reverse. Satan has a huge variety of these baits. And again, if you've ever seen a fisherman's tackle box, they got rows and rows and rows of different lures, different baits. Because they they know what they're doing. And they try to deceive the fish. Satan has the same thing. A huge variety of baits. And he's trapped many by using the different many baits. How many? He'll use that bait only one time. I'm only going to do this one time. I remember the first time I did drugs. I said, that's the last time I'll ever do it. Only one time. And it, it just kept going. Or somebody will say to the believer, you know, don't listen to narrow-minded, bigoted people. And, and that's what they say to us about the Scriptures. Oh, they're narrow-minded and they're bigoted. They're, they're, they're racist. Or, oh, you know what? You know what? It's not your fault. Why? That's your nature. You, you can't. And here's the thing. That's the way God made you. Why would, why would God punish me if that's the way He made me? No, God didn't make me a sinner. I was born a sinner. Because of Adam's fall. You can't, you know, you hear, oh, you can't help your nature and disposition. That's the way God made you. Or, you know what? And I've heard this before. Person knowingly sinning. Well, you know what? I'm going to do it anyway, but then I'm going to ask God to forgive me. That's not true forgiveness. That's cheapening the grace of God. That's using God's love and His grace and His mercy as a dumping ground for my sin. You know, God knows our heart. And how many times have we heard, oh, well, God knows my heart. He sure does. He knows whether I'm, you know, playing him or I'm for real. And these are just a few of the baits that Satan uses to lure you and me into his trap. Sometimes he uses decoys. He'll use religious people who we think are Christian. You know, a lot of times when I first got saved and I was watching Christian TV, anybody that was called a Christian, uh, I listened to. Anybody that said Jesus, I thought, oh, he's a Christian. Until I grew in the knowledge and the grace of Christ as I read the Word of God. Then the Holy Spirit started raising red flags on stuff that I was hearing. and go, well, that just doesn't sound right. uh, That's not what I read in the Bible. A lot of religious people do things like that. Why shouldn't you, Joe? You know, a lot of religious, religious people, you know, go out and they party and they drink and they do whatever. Why, why can't you? Why shouldn't you? Then think about our great comfort in spite of these dangers. God will surely deliver you. He's promised that He would deliver us. He's done it for people all down through the ages who, who wanted His deliverance. And Jesus, the Bible says, came to destroy the works of the devil and his snares. Look at verse 4. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Like a hen, God protects his people. Like a hen protects her chicks. The image 
of the hen protecting her chicks is taken from what you would usually see in farm life. And the psalmist compares himself, or God compares himself to the mother bird that looks after and cherishes and protects her young. And notice, he promises his gracious uh, protection. He compares his protection in verse 4 to what? A shield and buckler. And to Israel, it meant protection from, the, from outside disasters. God would protect them from like, like outside disasters, like pestilence, the destruction that's caused by war. But to us, it speaks of all that spiritual care that we can enjoy. That is, from all the guilt of past sin, from the power of sin now, from the power of temptation, from the destructive power of sorrow, from the misery of a useless and even more a harmful life, from the fear of death, from all of these things, God will protect us. The symbol, again, the symbol of the mother bird doesn't just suggest protection from enemies. It's a lot more than that. The shelter of the wing of the mother bird is to her young. And it will tell of what the precious promise of our text means to the believer in Jesus Christ. It means contentment and it means comfort. Psalm 63, 5, the psalmist said, My soul shall be satisfied. You see, the soul is happy in God. And prisons and deathbeds and wheelchairs and all kinds of unhappiness have been brightened up with the joyful contentment of those whose God has covered them with His wings. And who those who have put their trust under His wings. The young chicks are hidden under their mother's wing. It's a life that is hidden from strife. It's a life that's hidden from cruelty and the world. And it's a life that's near to the heart of God. Think of those young birds under the wings of their mother. And that kind of protection. They feel the beat of their mother's heart. Also the heart of the one that's sheltered sees and feels the love of God. It's a perfect peace, but only, as verse 1 says, to those who dwell in the secret place of the Most High. That is, those who abide, those who stay and remain in Christ. Always trusted, trusting in Christ, they will be, dwell in the secret place of the Most High. Look at verses 5 through 8. The psalmist says, You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near to you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked, because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. Verse 5 represents dangers from men. And verse 6, dangers from disease, epidemics, or plague. He says, a thousand may fall. That is a thousand wicked. That is multitudes cut down by the Lord. But the righteous will be spared. Why? Look at verses 9 through 10. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Now look at verses 11 through 13. Here's why. Because he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Verse 13. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. This promise is made only to those who dwell in the secret place. Now Satan quoted this verse in, verse in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. But like Satan often does, when he quotes Scripture, he changes it. 
That's why it's important for you to know the Word of God because Satan will change it. He may not directly change it himself attacking you, but through a, a preacher, through a fellow Christian, through somebody who says they're a Christian. If you don't know the Word of God and somebody comes and tells you something that is not of the Word of God, how are you going to know? How are you going to recognize the truth and error? Satan left out the most important part in this verse. When he was tempting Jesus, he said, in all your, he left out in all of your ways. You see, it's not in any ways that God will protect us. It's not in anything that we do. You, you hear the heathen always talk about, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm praying for the protection of God. It's not in any ways. It's not or in all your ways. You know, it's in his ways. It's in the, the, the appropriate way that I'm walking. It's not in any ways that we can have the angels care, but only in those ways that are right. The promise is for all of God's people as they go about their proper and appointed ways that God has made for them. Now, what does it mean in verse 12 when it says to dash your foot against a stone? What does the word dash mean there? Well, the word dash isn't a true interpretation, the best interpretation of the word. The Hebrew word used here is usually translated stumble, like it is in John chapter 11, where our Lord speaks of a man not stumbling if he walks by day, but he's sure to stumble if he walks at night in the dark. So what it means here is that he would be likely to strike some stone on the way and be tripped up. You see, when Satan used it, he meant to suggest to Jesus that if the promise was that he shouldn't even stumble, oh, Lord, you won't even stumble over a stone. How much more might you be protected by your father if you were to jump off the temple, the top of this temple? So you see, the word points to a very small and ordinary matter being kept from falling over a stone like a mother would hold up her child from such mishap. Verses 14 through 16. <clears throat> because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. And with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. They, he says, God says here, they have set their love upon me. The psalmist says, they have set their love upon the Lord. Their hearts have turned to him. They've turned away from sin and now they're set firmly fixed on God. And God says, I will rescue those who love me. I will rescue those who love me. Now, that could sound pretty generic, but when it comes to loving the Lord, that means that I obey Him. I am walking in His Word. I am walking in His way. That's what it means to love Him. And God says, I will protect those who trust in My name. Now, a lot of people have a sentimental affection for Jesus and they use the name Jesus like kind of a luck, luck charm. You know, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, and Jesus will help me, and Jesus, you know, it's like, it's saying it as a luck charm. Their hearts might burn inside for a little while, but the, the fire soon goes out. It gets cold and it dies out. But the ones that the psalmist is talking about here is he says they have set their love upon Him. Not that they just think of him or approve of him, but they have set their love on him. Therefore, they cling to him. He says they know his name. This is, this is even on a higher level. Their love has led them to stay close to him. 
and to stay in constant contact with Him so that they have come to know Him in an intimate and personal way like we know a dear and honored friend. Somebody that we've tested in. Somebody that's been tried and has never been found undependable. How do we get to some, know somebody that well? It's by being close to that person. It's by, being about, by, it's by being around them and with them all the time. Getting to know them. So these people that the psalmist is talking about, they have come to know God. And of course, it says in verse 14, God will set them on high. God will set them on high. Knowing God lifts the heart above the cares and the trials and the temptations and sorrows of this life. When God lifts us on high, He lifts us on a place where Satan can't reach us. Like little birds that the hawk is always looking for to prey on. Those little birds avoid their enemy. How? By keeping high above Him. So do the Lord's beloved. They live above sin. They live above the snares that Satan sets. They live above the sorrows of this life. They can't hurt them. And they pray effectively. Verse 15 says, He shall call upon me and I will answer him. The life of prayer. The walk with God. Those things always characterize God's people. They pray and they walk. They pray to God and they walk with God. And they have power in their prayer. The psalmist says here their prayers are answered. This can't be said of a lot of prayers. Which often, so often, nothing seems to happen. But it's different here. It says here, in their troubles, the Lord will, is with them. He said, notice, God says, I will be with him. They will have trouble. We know that's a given. The scripture tells us we're going to have trouble in this world. But you see, they're God's precious jewels. But like a jewel, you don't find them, you know, in all of their shiny brilliance and worth straight out of the ground. You see, they're put on the jeweler's wheel and they're ground and they're polished before it will show its brilliance and its worth. It's the same with God's jewels. He takes us and he puts us on that wheel and he buffs us and he polishes us. And, he, and that's what shows our brilliance. Now, trouble can't be avoided. That, that's part of this life. But you know what? Going through it alone can be avoided. And you know what? It is avoided by these people that the psalmist is talking about here who have made God their secret place. Remember Paul and Silas in the dungeon at Philippi? Hey, they're a great example. God was with them. Paul on the ship to Malta, about to go down, they thought. Paul told the, the, those on the boat who were just freaking out, he said, hey, God stood by me this night and nobody's going to perish. And the ship's not going down. Nobody's going to perish. And this is the experience of God's people in all ages, all through history. And because they are the Lord's beloved, they receive, notice in verse 15, deliverance. You know, and, and mark this verse 15. God's beloved, you will receive deliverance, verse 15 says. Notice, I will deliver him. How could it be otherwise? How could God do otherwise? Even though deliverance is real, it's not always something that we can see. Second, God will honor us, verse 15 says, with eternal life, long life, satisfaction. Jesus is all that I want. 
The vision of the salvation of God for those dear to Him and for the world. God's response to His people, what is God's response? He says, I will answer prayer. But not the prayer of every man or woman. Only those who have set their love upon God and those who dwell in the secret place of the Most High. Only to them is prayer answered. And you know what? Many times it's, it's answered in ways other than what we've expected. But God will always, no, God will always give us what's best. But that might be a lot different than what I thought would be best or what I thought or expected. And you know what? He'll be with us in time of trouble. God is always with us. We saw that in, in, in this morning's lesson with Peter. Though they were out far away in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, God saw them. God was watching them. Jesus saw what they were going through. He saw them straining as they were rowing. He will always be with us in trouble. He, he's always with us. And even more so when we're in trouble. And this is shown sometimes by His providential help. That is, when He intervenes with His hand. By His grace, He holds us up. And then what results from it? To the man of God or the woman of God, the following things are impossible. And this is really the verse that, that I want you to, to, to write down and, and mark. What results from, from, from again, uh, um, being in that, dwelling in that secret place of the Most High? Well, the following things are impossible. Number one, disappointment. Why? Verse 15 says, because I will answer. Because God will answer. What else is impossible? Loneliness. Why? Because verse 15 said, God is always with him. And especially when he or, her or she is in trouble. Third, what else is impossible? Disgrace. Why? Verse 15 said, because God honors him. God honors him. And fourth, what is impossible for those who live in the secret place of the Most High? Defeat. Why? Because verse 15 says, God will deliver him. What great promise we have here. For those, though, who dwell, who abide, who stay, remain, continue in the secret place of the Most High. Father, thank you so much for your wonderful word, God. Lord, you're just so awesome and mighty, Father. We just, your word is just, Lord, there, there are no words for your word. We can't even begin to describe the goodness of your word, God, the power of your word, the sensibility of your word, God. Lord, it's so perfect in every way, God. And Lord, if we would live it, if we would, Lord, take it to heart. If we would live it, God, oh, Lord, we would. We would escape so many difficulties and problems, Lord. And also we would receive great rewards. Just plain and simple things like peace and joy, contentment. Because we're walking in your ways, God. <clears throat> because we're, we're dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. With you, Lord, where the enemy can't touch me, Lord. Where he can't hurt me. He may harass me. He may depress me, distress me, obsess me. But he can't possess me. We're so thankful for you, Lord.
Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But you want to. God will never deny you. The worship team's going to lead us in a time of worship. And this time is for you. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front and I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.